Welcome to Washington Today on C-SPAN Radio for Thursday, January 19th, 2023. President Joe Biden travels to California for a survey of the damage from the wave after wave of powerful storms that have hit the state, causing floods, landslides, and deaths. President also there to determine if additional federal support is needed for the recovery. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen telling Congress that the U.S. has officially hit its debt limit. And the first emergency measures are being taken to avoid a first ever default on the debt. This as the debate continues over whether a debt ceiling increase should be accompanied by spending cuts. Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas discussing immigration and border security at the U.S. Conference of Mayors meeting in Washington. Secretary of State Antony Blinken announcing a new program to allow private citizens to sponsor refugees from other countries settling in the U.S. It's called Welcome Corps. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin is in Germany for a meeting of allies supporting Ukraine in the war against Russia's invasion and questions to the Pentagon today about what it will take to get Germany to send its modern military tanks to Ukraine. And New Zealand's Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern says she'll be resigning from office. Not long ago, she had indicated she'd be running for re-election. And we start with President Biden in California to see the damage from the powerful storms that have hit over the last couple of weeks and get a briefing on recovery. Associated Press reporting the storms caused destruction across 41 of California's 58 counties and killed at least 20 people. And the president will visit the storm damage Capitola Pier in Santa Cruz County, where he'll meet with business owners and affected residents. And also will meet with first responders and deliver remarks on supporting the state's recovery at the nearby Seacliff State Park. The administrator of FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, Deanne Criswell, spoke to reporters on the flight from Washington, D.C. California has really experienced some unprecedented um, storms. Nine atmospheric rivers that have gone through since uh, right before the new year. And uh, I spoke with Governor Newsom after the first one, like in between the first and the second one. And I was just on the ground this last weekend to assess the damage myself. Uh, I had an opportunity to brief uh, the president before my travels, but also while I was on the ground. And I think what's really um, interesting about this is when I talk to people on the ground, what they told me is that, you know, these storms are coming with hurricane strength winds. They're also uh, making incredible um, uh, storm surge-like conditions with the surf. And so they felt like it was uh, being hit by hurricane after hurricane. And so they've had a number of evacuation orders um, across the state since the beginning of this. And people have experienced up to four times being asked to evacuate their homes. And I think really feeling some fatigue of this, let's leave, let's come back and check. Oh no, it's gonna be dangerous again, leave again. And so it's really been impactful in a way that I think uh, we haven't seen in a very long time with these repeated storms across the area. Uh, As you heard, the president did approve an expedited major disaster declaration. I'll just give you the counties that that covers right now. That's Sacramento, Santa Cruz, Merced, San Luis Obispo, Monterey, and Santa Barbara. Those counties have been approved for both individual assistance as well as Category A debris removal and Category B emergency protective measures. And San Joaquin has been approved for individual assistance only at this time. 
Uh, we are embedded with the state and we're continuing to do damage assessments and we expect more counties to be added as we continue those assessments. And so with that, I'll take any questions that you have. Um, do you have a sense yet of what the damage total will be in terms of the dollar figure to, uh, to repair the damage and, re and help these communities recover? Yeah, we're starting to get some numbers in, but honestly, because this has been so ongoing and there's so many parts of the state that they haven't actually been able to access yet because there's still significant road closures across the state, um, several hundred million um, as initial estimates, but I expect that number to go up. Deanne Criswell is the administrator of FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, speaking to reporters on Air Force One flying with President Biden from Washington, D.C. to California. Now to the federal debt limit, the Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen sending a letter to House Speaker Kevin McCarthy today announcing that the national debt limit of $31.381 trillion has been reached. And the department has begun using what are called extraordinary measures to avoid a default on the debt. Secretary Yellen says the first steps are not putting any more money into the Civil Service Retirement and Disability Fund and the Postal Service Retiree Health Benefits Fund beyond what's required to immediately pay beneficiaries. Secretary Yellen has previously estimated that all the emergency steps available can put off a default until June. But in her letter to Speaker McCarthy today, she con she concludes with this. The period of time that extraordinary measures may last is subject to considerable uncertainty, including the challenges of forecasting the payments and receipts of the U.S. government months into the future. I respectfully urge Congress to act and promptly to protect the full faith and credit of the United States. House Republican leaders have been calling for federal spending cuts to go along with any debt limit increase bill. President Biden and other Democrats saying they're not going to support that. Congresswoman Nancy Mace, Republican from South Carolina, interviewed today by Washington Post Live anchor Leanne Caldwell about the debt limit. The White House says that it's not going to negotiate. So if this does come to the brink, are you willing to let the country default? For, for someone who calls themselves a great unifier, that's not unifying. Uh, you know, when you look at the overall Congress, the White House should absolutely be negotiating on this. So the House is controlled by Republicans. The Senate is controlled by Democrats, which you saw in the midterms was a very close election, which doesn't mean one side or the other has an absolute mandate on their issues. This is a time for us to work together. And if we had a plan to rein in spending, balance the budget over the next de decade without touching Social Security, which, by the way, there's a plan to do that called the Penny Plan that Senator Rand Paul files in the Senate. I have a House version of it myself. But there are plans out there that are responsible, reasonable, and you know, really hold everyone to account for the debt that's been hiked up over the last several decades. Um, some Republicans are talking about a debt <clears throat> prioritization plan, meaning that if the debt limit is reached, then perhaps they should prior the Treasury Department should prioritize uh, what to pay, what bills to pay. Is that is that something that you could support? Well, I'd want to see what the priorities are already. If there's a government shutdown, critical or essential workers are allowed to continue their work and, and be paid for that work. Um, I would want to see the details of which I haven't seen. I would hope that any spending proposal would go through the regular order of the House and would garner approval from our conference, uh, our conference's majority. And 
every time there's a debt limit fight that really comes to the brink, it's been in the 1990s and in the in 2011. Both times there was a Republican House of Representatives mm-hmm. and a Democratic president. Why do Republicans care about the debt and spending under Democratic presidents, and it's not so much an issue under Republican presidents? It's one of the reasons I fault both sides. For decades now, uh, Republicans are just as much responsible for our debt uh, as as our Democrats. Both sides are are, are guilty as charged. Um, for a long time, it's always been Republicans wanted to increase defense spending, and for that, Democrats wanted to increase entitlement spending. And neither side has held the other accountable. And now we're in this predicament with uh, trillions and trillions of dollars of debt that we're facing. And now we have a president who's unwilling to come to the table and negotiate some sort of deal. And I, and I don't think this has to be some crazy far right or far left sort of negotiation. I mean, if you were to cut a very small percentage of every dollar, say one to five pennies, one to five cents on the dollar for every future dollar the federal government spends, you could balance the budget in about a decade. And I don't think that's too much to ask for either side to come to the table and figure out how we, how do we do this? How do we save Social Security, Medicare and Medicaid? And then balance things out. And if you look at the penny plan that Senator Paul put together that I have in the House version, um, we don't touch any of that. And after the budget is balanced, you can increase spending by over 10% every year thereafter. Uh, that's called responsible. And it's just crazy to me they're at this juncture and of course, there's urgency, there's an emergency, there's need, there are headlines um, to be put into this corner without the ability to have a conversation with the president on what might be a responsible next step for the next, not even asking the next year, but the next 10 years to do this in a, a very responsible manner. And that's completely off the table. And I don't think that's what the American people want right now. Congresswoman Nancy Mays, Republican from South Carolina, in a virtual interview with Washington Post reporter Leanne Caldwell. Olivia Dalton is the White House Principal Deputy Press Secretary. She reiterated today President Biden's position supporting what is called a clean debt ceiling increase. That is, no additional provisions such as reducing spending. Olivia Dalton spoke with reporters on Air Force One flying with the president from Washington to California. I mentioned a moment ago that tomorrow marks two years since the president took office and his leadership is delivering results on the economy. We're growing the economy from the bottom up and the middle out. We're bringing inflation down. We're creating jobs with historically low unemployment. And we think Republicans should welcome that news and work with us on uh, how to build on it, not set it back. Uh, That means Congress must address the debt limit limit without conditions. Uh, Our posture on this hasn't changed. There will be no negotiations over the debt ceiling. Uh, And again, Congress must address this without conditions, as they did three times under Donald Trump with bipartisan support. I also wanted to point out that Kevin McCarthy himself voted three times to lift the debt ceiling under Trump without any spending cuts, and there's no reason that this position should change. And then on the idea of a discharge um, petition, does the White House have any feelings on that? Is is the president or anyone else at the White House reaching out to moderate Republicans to talk to them about that? Look, I don't have any uh, conversations with members of Congress to read out for you at this moment or conversations to preview. Obviously, the president and members of our teams have been closely in touch with members of Congress to ensure they, they know our view on the debt limit, ensure that they know that uh, there's no room for negotiation here, there's no room for hostage taking, there's too much at stake. 
Um, a Moody's analysis showed that six million jobs, as many as six million jobs, could be on the line if we default on our debt. And we all know that even the prospect of defaulting is, is could have serious impacts on the economy. Uh, so we believe this is a matter of urgency, that the Congress should act without delay, uh, and again, raise the debt ceiling without uh, conditions. Olivia Dalton is the White House Principal Deputy Press Secretary, speaking with reporters on Air Force One, flying from Washington to California with the president. That reference in the question to a discharge petition. The Wall Street Journal has an article that explains Democrats and some centrist Republicans are in early informal conversations about dusting off a rarely used parliamentary procedure that could force a vote to raise the nation's borrowing limit ahead of a showdown in coming months over government spending. The process, known as a discharge petition, requires 218 signatures, regardless of party, a majority of the House, to dislodge a bill from committee and move it to the floor. That from the Wall Street Journal. Senator Joe Manchin, Democrat from West Virginia, saying today in a Bloomberg TV interview that he believes both parties should compromise and reach a deal on this debt limit situation that both sides can live with. We will pay our debts. We always have. We always will. How messy is it going to get getting from point A to point B? We don't know yet. But I'd like to see really, truly a, a coalition of a bipartisan, bicameral Democrats and Republicans putting a group together that says we're going to look at all the trust funds to find out the deficiencies, when they're going to be insolvent and what we can do to prevent that. And then basically have a piece of legislation that we're saying, OK, we will make this deal. We'll raise the debt ceiling if you allow us to have give the American public a look at what we're dealing with. Recommendations we'll make and have a vote on the floor, whether it goes up or not, but at least it identifies it's serious. And the same thing with the 31 plus trillion dollars of debt. So that sounds a little bit like some commissions we've seen in the past, like on well, base closings and on Social Security. Where are you on that? Are you starting to put that together? Are there well, real I'm prospects? Just, I'm just throwing it out to make people. My dear friend, Mitt Romney, yeah. has been working on the Trust Act. I joined him on that. I think it's, it's tremendous to identify that we've got Social Security, Medicare. We've got the Highway Trust. Think about the Highway Trust with all electric vehicles and no gasoline tax. What are you going to do? How are you going to fund the highways and infrastructure and bridges? No one's talking about that. This is all we just want EVs, put them out there. We're not charging any mileage. There's nothing to, 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 to help us take care of the roads that you're going to use these wonderful electric vehicles on. So this has to be addressed. And so he's been very good in leading that. And we talked about, you remember the old uh, uh, the, uh, no, uh, Bowles uh, Simpson? Sure. Okay, that was back in 2010, 2011? Yeah. Let's look at a hybrid of something that we're going to have to agree that we have a tremendous amount of debt that we're writing checks our kids can't cash. You've got to address it. What generation is going to address it? Is it irresponsible for us? So if you want to have concerns about should we or should we not, absolutely, we should, we should pay our debts. Should we allow them to grow disproportionately to where we have more trouble every year coming to that conclusion to pay the debts when we could have done something? So let's see how this goes. I think there's a Kevin McCarthy, it's a wonderful opportunity for him to say, listen, let's act like adults. We've got a debt whose fault we're all at fault. How do we fix it together and move forward? Senator Joe Manchin, Democrat from West Virginia, interviewed by Bloomberg Television on the sidelines of the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland. TheHill.com reports that Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, Republican from Kentucky, said Thursday he's confident that the U.S. will never default on its debt and that he is not concerned a financial crisis could be on the horizon. Senator McConnell told reporters in his home state that while the push to raise the debt ceiling is always a rather contentious effort, 
He believes lawmakers will succeed at doing so before the Treasury exhausts its extraordinary measures in June. He said, in the end, I think the important thing to remember is that America must never default on the debt. It never has. It never will. We'll end up in some kind of negotiation with the administration over what the circumstances or conditions under which the debt ceiling is raised. That from thehill.com. Wall Street today, the Dow down 252, NASDAQ down 104, S&P down 30. Third straight day of losses on Wall Street. Labor Department says the percentage of U.S. workers belonging to a union dropped in 2022 to a new low, 10.1%. It's down from 10.3% the year before. Of the 5.3 million total jobs created in 2022, 273,000 were union. A Gallup poll earlier this year found that 71% of Americans have a favorable view of unions, but 58% of non-unionized workers say they are not interested at all in joining one. The U.S. Conference of Mayors winter meeting in Washington, D.C. continuing today. Pollster Frank Luntz spoke at one of the sessions about what Americans want to hear from politicians, not just topics and themes, but literally the very specific words that can bridge divides. If someone says to you, the economy, that's not what is scaring the public. And by the way, even though we said inflation here, I follow people through supermarkets to listen to how they shop, to see what they buy. It's kind of creepy. I got thrown out a couple times. Um, I realized if you do that and you're wearing a raincoat, you're in deep trouble. (laughs) No human being uses the word inflation except people at this table. It's about, I can't afford that. It's too expensive. Stop using language that isn't what they understand or represent. In terms of what they want from you, please take a photograph of this because there's nothing that deals with issues here, but it's all how we live our lives. If you are male, your number one priority is having more money. If you're female, the number one priority is more time in your life. If you're young, you want a better lifestyle and work-life balance because you want no work and all life. (laughs) And by the way, I've got 14 of my students from USC who are here. Where are my students? Oh, they're all back there. Yes, please, it's the next generation. And by the way, why did you take seats? You got open seats right here. Don't let them send you to the back of the bus, sit in the front of the room. And older people want no worries and less hassles. This, this is how you communicate to people. It's not whether you're conservative or liberal or progressive. It's helping them through their day-to-day life. So what do they want most in terms of the mayor? you got to tell them what your priorities are, and here's why. Values are about you, the mayor. Principles are about you, the mayor. Priorities are actually about them. Your priorities become their priorities. That's what they're looking for. Here's another example, because you're going to tell me that all of these are important. The best skill you can have is problem solving. And in fact, the way that you get reelected and the way that you deserve and earn your public support is if you're a problem solver. It's the number one attribute that they're asking from mayors, more so now than it has ever been. And even though they want to know the truth from you, they want you to, to be a critical thinker, conflict resolution, problem solving beats all of that. 
So what are the attributes that matters most? Results, solutions, and getting things done? Say no to lobbyists. This is the top stuff. Let me show you what the bottom stuff is, because this is also frightening. Smart and intelligent comes in dead last. <laughs> Be thankful for that. And I met a few of you over there, kind and compassionate. I get it. That's not, I'm going to go back because I want you, I want to emphasize results, solutions, getting things done. That's what matters most. And I know we got a bunch of business people in here. If you're a CEO of a company, that's the highest priority that the public has of you and for you because there's a lot of talk and there's no action. Pollster Frank Luntz speaking at the U.S. Conference of Mayors Winter Meeting in Washington, D.C. today. The U.S. House Oversight and Accountability Committee Chair James Comer, Republican from Kentucky, announcing today that his committee will hold a hearing on the U.S.-Mexico border the week of February 6th, and it will feature testimony from Border Patrol agents. Congressman Comer putting out a statement saying the Biden administration's deliberate actions are fueling human smuggling, stimulating drug cartel operations, enabling deadly drugs such as fentanyl to flow into American communities, and encouraging illegal immigrants to flout U.S. immigration laws. Republicans will hold the Biden administration accountable for this ongoing humanitarian, national security, and public health crisis that has turned every town into a border town. Border Patrol is part of the Homeland Security Department, and today the Homeland Security Secretary, Alejandro Mayorkas, spoke before the U.S. Conference of Mayors meeting about immigration and border security. We're executing a comprehensive strategy to secure our borders and build a safe, orderly, and humane immigration system, working within a broken system in desperate need of legislative reform two weeks ago. We announced new lawful pathways for non-citizens seeking relief in the United States, accompanied by a consequence regime for those who do not avail themselves of those processes. Since then, encounters from the targeted countries have dropped significantly. FEMA is providing emergency food and shelter program funds to help cities around the country recover or defray the costs of non-citizen arrivals. CBP and ICE are working closely with cities to share information and coordinate the disposition of non-citizens in immigration enforcement proceedings. We are also protecting the integrity of the American workplace, the rights of workers, and the right to fair competition. This past Friday, we announced that non-citizen workers who are victims of or witnesses to the violation of labor rights now can access a streamlined and expedited process to obtain protection from retaliatory action if they are part of a labor enforcement investigation. Critically, this includes investigations by state, county, and municipal agencies. We welcome partnership with your labor enforcement agencies to ensure vulnerable workers are aware of the protections available to them, and predatory employers are held accountable. Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas at the U.S. Conference of Mayors Winter Meeting today in Washington, D.C. New York City Mayor Eric Adams, a Democrat, also spoke to the conference about immigration, calling on President Biden and Congress to provide more resources to the cities that are seeing high numbers of migrants. 
Fox News has an article that has this. Thanks to a busing program from Republican Texas Governor Greg Abbott, New York City alone has received more than 30,000 migrants in the past 12 months. Here is Mayor Adams on Wednesday. Just a few days ago, I was in El Paso to see for myself how the asylum seeker crisis affecting our border states and our entire nation. What I saw was not a state problem or a city problem. It is a national problem driven by global forces impacting regular people. Every attempt to deal with this immigration on a national level through legislation has been sabotaged, mostly by right-wing oppositions. And cities are bearing the brunt of this failure which is why I ask all of you here today to join me and say, we must come together as Americans to solve an American problem. A true solution. A true solution to this problem is going to come from the executive branch and from bipartisan effort in our Senate and House. I want to thank New York City Congressional Delegation United States Senator Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and U.S. House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries for their leadership and for providing New York and other localities with federal funding to help cover a portion of these expenses. I also want and like to thank Biden-Harris administration for supporting policies that would assist localities on the front lines of the asylum seeker crisis gripping our nation. They have put forward a bold vision on immigration reform and requested billions of additional funding from Congress. But we are in need of more help now. Today, I'm calling for a national response to the asylum seeker crisis, which includes six main points. One, a dedicated point person whose sole focus is overseeing and coordinating on national asylum seeker response. Two, a decompression strategy at the border that establishes a plan for each migrant's arrival and creates a system to fairly distribute newcomers regionally. Three, congressional funding for the Federal Emergency Management Agency to implement that strategy in the places of greatest need. Four, expedite right-to-work options for asylum seekers who are allowed to enter the country, can't come here for six months, and weigh on the cities that you're housed in. Congressional legis legislation that provides a clear pathway to residency or citizenship for those who enter this country legally is the fifth item. And six, a nationwide leadership that takes an all-hands-on-deck approach by bringing together nonprofits, the faith-based community, and the private sector alongside state and local government to meet this challenge. New York City Mayor Eric Adams speaking to the U.S. Conference of Mayors meeting in Washington, D.C. on Wednesday. New York Times reporting that in a major effort to open the door to more refugee resettlement, the Biden administration will begin inviting ordinary Americans to directly sponsor the arrival of thousands of displaced people from around the world into their communities. A new policy allowing the participation of private citizens in resettling vulnerable families marks the most significant reorientation of the U.S. refugee program since its inception more than four decades ago. The article goes on, since 1989, federally funded nonprofits, such as the International Rescue Committee, 
have been charged with managing all U.S. refugee resettlement, including finding housing and work for arriving families, as well as enrolling them in English classes and helping them secure medical appointments and learn bus routes. That from the New York Times. The Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, announced this new program called Welcome Corps in a posted video. Providing a safe haven and a new home for people fleeing war, violence, and persecution is one of America's noblest traditions, dating back to the founding of our nation. And throughout our history, our country has benefited from the energy, the ingenuity, the hard work of refugees. American communities have long been at the heart of welcoming refugees, whether they were escaping the horrors of World War II, the repression of autocrats, or persecution because of who they were or what they believed. We witnessed this over the last year, as Americans of all ages and backgrounds in every American state stepped up to help resettle thousands of Afghans, Ukrainians, and Venezuelans. Building on this proud tradition, the State Department is launching the Welcome Corps, a private sponsorship program that will harness the generosity and goodwill of American citizens to resettle refugees. For over four decades, our system has relied primarily on resettlement agencies to do this work. Under this new initiative, people in communities, faith-based organizations, colleges and universities, veterans associations, and other groups will be able to play that role taking the lead in helping refugees do things like find a place to live, enroll kids in school, obtain basic goods like furniture and winter clothes. Private sponsorship is a big responsibility, but the reality is that American communities have been crucial partners in this work for some time. And the most important thing Americans need to succeed as sponsors is something they already have, knowledge of their community, like how to catch a bus to the local library, where to buy groceries, the best park to spend a Sunday afternoon. They won't do it alone. Throughout the process, private sponsors will be able to rely on resettlement experts for guidance and support. The Welcome Corps will allow Americans to do what we do best, be guides and friends to our new neighbors, put them on a path to realizing their full potential, to the benefit not just of refugee families, but all our families. Secretary of State Antony Blinken, part of the video that he posted today. Later in the State Department briefing room, the Assistant Secretary of State for the Bureau of Population, Refugees and Migration, Julieta Noyes, gave some more details about this new Welcome Corps program. We're launching the Welcome Corps in two phases. In the first phase, groups of five or more Americans or legal permanent residents can apply to form a private sponsor group. When certified, they will be matched with a refugee who is already approved for resettlement in the United States. In the second phase, which will launch around the middle of this year, groups can identify and refer to the U.S. Refugee Admissions Program the refugees they would like to sponsor. If approved and certified, they will then sponsor the resettlement of these specific refugees. Our goal in 2023 is to mobilize 10,000 Americans to step forward as private sponsors and help resettle at least 5,000 refugees. Time and again, we've seen the generosity and the welcoming spirit of the American people. If more than 10,000 sponsors join the Welcome Corps this year, we will make every effort to pair them with refugees in need. Julieta Noyes. Assistant Secretary of State for the Bureau of Population, Refugees and Migration in the State Department briefing room. More from the New York Times article, turning to ordinary Americans to help 
settle refugees could substantially increase the number of displaced people resettled from Africa, the Middle East, and other troubled areas, and also defray the cost for the government. The number of refugees welcomed into the United States plummeted during the Trump administration, which gutted the refugee admissions infrastructure both in the United States and abroad, where vulnerable people seeking safe haven are vetted, interviewed, and processed. That from the New York Times. Washington Today continues in a moment. Welcome back to Washington Today, which you can get as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts and on the C-SPAN Now mobile app. A few more headlines. The Supreme Court says it is unable to identify who leaked last year an unpublished draft of an opinion that showed the court was likely to reverse the 1973 Roe v. Wade decision that had made abortion a constitutional right. The Supreme Court says that no one has confessed to the leak and a forensic analysis of their computer system does not point to any court employee, and there's no evidence of an outsider hacking in. You can read the Supreme Court's full report at C-SPAN.org. And the office of Congressman Greg Stubbe, Republican from Florida, says he is making progress and in good spirits after spending a night in the ICU after a fall from a ladder 25 feet on his property in Sarasota, Florida. Also, his office saying that His several serious injuries are still under assessment, but not life-threatening at this time. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, Republican from California, tweeting, I spoke with Congressman Stubbe and his wife, Jen, this morning. He is in good spirits, and our entire conference prays for a swift recovery. New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern reports Associated Press, whose empathetic handling of the nation's worst mass shooting and health-driven response to the coronavirus pandemic led her to become an international icon, but who faced mounting criticism at home, said Thursday she was leaving office. The Prime Minister spoke at a news conference in Napier, New Zealand. And so today I'm announcing that I will not be seeking re-election and that my term as Prime Minister will conclude no later than the 7th of February. This has been the most fulfilling five and a half years of my life, but has also had its challenges. Amongst an agenda focused on housing, child poverty and climate change, we encountered a major biosecurity incursion, a domestic terror event, a major natural disaster, a global pandemic and an economic crisis. The decisions that have had to be made have been continual and they have been weighty. But I'm not leaving because it was hard. Had that been the case, I probably would have departed two months into the job. I am leaving because with such a privileged role comes responsibility. The responsibility to know when you are the right person to lead and also when you are not. I know what this job takes, and I know that I no longer have enough in the tank to do it justice. New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern at a news conference in Napier, New Zealand. She's been a prime minister and leader of the Labour Party since 2017. She says that general elections will be this October and that she'll remain a lawmaker until then. U.S. Vice President Kamala Harris tweeting a photo of her and the Prime Minister, adding, Prime Minister Ardern is a forward-looking global leader who has inspired millions around the world. Thank you, Madam Prime Minister, for your leadership and for strengthening the ties between the U.S. and New Zealand. 
Now to the war in Ukraine. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin is in Germany for tomorrow's meeting of the Ukraine Contact Group, the allied countries who have been supporting Ukraine with weapons to fight Russia after Russia's invasion last year. Secretary Austin making a brief statement today alongside the German defense minister. It's been a turbulent time for European and global security, but throughout the crisis caused by Russia's unprovoked invasion of Ukraine, Germany has remained a true friend of the United States and a staunch defender of our allies and values. So we'll continue to support uh, Ukrainian uh, people as as they resist uh, Russian aggression and defend their sovereign territory. I'd like to thank the German government for all that it has done to strengthen Ukraine's self-defense and your contributions of security assistance and training for Ukraine's defenders have been invaluable. I also appreciate your strong support for our increased presence and for logistical operations to quickly move soldiers and equipment to and through Germany to reinforce our eastern flank allies. Tomorrow at Ramstein, we'll join our allies and partners at the year's first meeting of the Ukrainian Defense Contact Group and we'll renew our united commitment to support Ukraine's self-defense for the long haul. So at our meeting today, we'll discuss some of the issues that we'll tackle tomorrow at the contact group together with our friends. And we'll also discuss other key issues for NATO and for our bilateral defense relationship and ways that we can do even more together. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin standing beside the new German defense minister in Germany today. There are several reports saying that a number of countries will announce plans at tomorrow's meeting to send the German-made Leopard 2 tanks to Ukraine, amounting to hundreds of tanks total. But the question all week is whether Germany itself will also commit to sending Ukraine its Leopard tanks. This came up at today's Pentagon briefing with the Deputy Press Secretary, Sabrina Singh. The Germans have indicated they are hesitant to provide tanks to Ukraine unless the U.S. also provides Abrams. Where are we on those discussions, and what is the likelihood that you know, Abrams would be sent in order to, um, I guess, work alongside the Germans on this? Well, we're going to have a readout um, from the Secretary's meeting with um, his counterpart, um, uh, Minister of Defense Pistorius later today. But in terms of the conversations, I think you saw Dr. Call really speak to this yesterday. Um, the Abrams are a, it's more of a sustainment issue. I mean, this is a tank that is, um, requires jet fuel, whereas the Leopard and the um, the Challenger, uh, th- it's a different engine. They require diesel. It's um, a little bit easier to maintain. They can maneuver across large portions of territory before they need to refuel. The the maintenance and the um, the high cost that uh, it would take to maintain an, an Abrams is just it just doesn't make sense to provide that to the Ukrainians at this moment. Um, as you know, we've provided the Bradleys. Um, we're seeing other nations uh, step up and continue to provide um, equipment and material to Ukraine um, that they can. Ultimately, this is Germany's decision. It's their sovereign uh, decision um, on what security assistance they will provide. Um, So we won't be able to speak to them. But I think that um, we are certainly doing what we can to support Ukraine in, in in what they need.
Yeah, Warren. Uh, on the same topic, a senior defense official said yesterday, traveling uh, with the secretary, that uh, they're optimistic that they will make progress on Germany with tanks by the end of the week. And yet, a senior administration official here tells us Germany's not budging and demands tank for tanks. Are you optimistic that you will see progress by the end of the week with Germany? Um, do you believe that's going to happen, or is it less optimistic at this point? Well, I, you know, I don't have a crystal ball here to say what will or will won't happen by the end of the week. Um, the secretary had a productive conversation um, with his counterpart. The contact group is meeting tomorrow, so I'll leave any further announcements from other countries and other nations and partners and allies to them. Um, but again, you know, we are thankful for what Germany has been able to contribute already. They sent uh, infantry fighting vehicles um, and, a, and a Patriot missile battery system to Ukraine. Um, and we're continuing to work with other partners and allies around the world to see what else can be provided to Ukraine. And that's that's the whole point of tomorrow's meeting. Sabrina Singh is the Defense Department's deputy press secretary with reporters today in the Pentagon briefing room. Former Russian President Dmitry Medvedev, who is now deputy chair of the current Russian President Vladimir Putin's Security Council, posting online today a warning to the United States and other Western nations about further arming Ukraine. He writes, the defeat of a nuclear power in a conventional war may trigger a nuclear war. Nuclear powers have never lost major conflicts on which their fate depends. Russia's Federal Security Service says it is launching a criminal investigation of an unnamed American, quote, suspected of collecting intelligence information on biological topics directed against the security of the Russian Federation. Question about this today at the U.S. State Department briefing with the deputy spokesperson, Vedant Patel. I'm wondering if you've managed to find anything out about this report or this uh, FSB claim that they've arrested an American citizen in Russia for uh, espionage. So a couple of things, Matt. Uh, we have no higher priority than the safety and security of U.S. citizens uh, overseas. We are aware of these unconformed reports of an investigation regarding a U.S. citizen. Unconfirmed. Unconfirmed reports of an investigation regarding a U.S. citizen in Russia. Uh, uh, generally, the Russian Federation does not abide by its obligations to provide timely notification of the detention of U.S. citizens in Russia. Uh, Russian authorities also don't regularly inform the embassy of the trials, sentencing, uh, or movement of U.S. citizens. We're looking into this matter and will continue to monitor. Uh, the embassy in Moscow continues to engage with Russian authorities uh, to ensure timely, consular notifications and access to all U.S. citizens. Okay. Well, apart from whether or not there, there's been an espionage investigation, are you aware of any additional Americans having been detained for any reason uh, in, in Russia by, by the Russians? Uh, I am not. Uh, Apart from this. I, I am not, but as you know, this, uh, this is a number that uh, fluctuates, and I will see if we have a more specific update for you, but I am not aware. Vedant Patel is the State Department deputy spokesperson at his news conference today. Thanks for listening to Washington Today. Sign up for C-SPAN's evening newsletter word for word to get the stories Washington is talking about sent to your inbox every day. You can subscribe at c-span.org forward slash connect. Have a good night.